Abraham Joshua Heschel was a great rabbi of the 20th century. And he had a phrase, according to his daughter, that he was fond of repeating. I first read this phrase several years ago, and since the first time I read it, it has really stuck with me. Heschel said that words, words create worlds. Words create worlds. There's so many layers to the truth of this phrase. Our tradition tells a story. A story of words that says that God speaks and the world in which we live is made real. This world is built by and maintained by words of beauty and creativity. Words created this world. But we know that this truth doesn't just stop there. This truth goes deeper. Think of words that have been spoken over you. I remember careless words spoken by a careless pastor over me years ago. And those words created a narrow world around me, a world in which I was unsure of myself and unsure of my own ability to speak words of life. But I also remember words of grace that I received from another pastor. And those words created a world of possibility and encouragement and freedom in which I flourished. Words create worlds. God speaks worlds into existence and somehow has given us the ability to do the same. Think of the stories that have shaped our lives and shaped this very world. Stories of Jean Valjean and Romeo and Juliet, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are the story found in To Kill a Mockingbird. These stories capture our imaginations and our hearts but they actually shape the world in which we live. It's no exaggeration to say that these stories and these words form us and form this world. And for us here in this place, one such story that forms us is, of course, the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is told in many different ways, including, if necessary, as Robert would say, by using words, One set of words is clearly not enough because in our Bibles we find this story of Jesus told four different ways with different words and different events happening in different orders, emphasizing different meanings and interpretations of those words. We also tell this story in the practices of our gatherings. Communion and baptism witness to the way in the story of Christ through word and through practice. The way that we structure this worship service reenacts and retells the story of the human and divine encounter centered on the person of Jesus with word and with worship. Even our church calendar is designed to speak words to tell this, to tell this story. Over the last several months since we started in December, these liturgical seasons have emphasized different landmarks of the life of Jesus the Christ. In the seasons of Advent and Christmas, we celebrated the incarnation. We celebrated the full expression of divinity wrapped up in the full expression of humanity. And in the seasons of Lent and Holy Week, we told the story about the passion and the death of Jesus. 
Jesus' passion for the kingdom of God led to a confrontation with the kingdoms of this world and the powers of this world tortured and killed this man. But on the day of Easter, we told another story. We spoke words of resurrection, words of this Jesus rising from the dead. Not only would the kingdoms of this world fail to conquer the human one, but the very forces of sin and death were defeated. And the season of Easter, the season of Easter has actually continued till today. We are still in this season. Today's the final Sunday of this season. And today we mark a new landmark. Today we tell another story, the story of the ascension. The ascension narrative that we read this morning is found at the very beginning of the book of Acts. This book of Acts is actually Luke's second volume in his telling of the story of Jesus. As Luke opens this second volume, he tells this story. Curiously, though, Luke had finished the first volume with the same story. Luke tells the same story twice. The words are a little different, but the story's the same. For Luke, this story is the hinge of the whole narrative. The ascension. This is the fulcrum around which the story of the divinity indwelling with humanity is told. In this gospel, in Luke's gospel, when Luke first tells this story, it serves to tell the reader about who Jesus really is. And then when Luke retells the same story in Acts, the emphasis shifts. The emphasis is not on Jesus any longer, but the emphasis is on those that follow Jesus. I read a quote this week that I really liked from a professor of biblical studies named James Edwards. Edwards wrote that a wrong view of messiahship will lead to a wrong view of discipleship. A wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. So let's start with messiahship. What does the ascension story in Luke's gospel tell us about this Jesus? At least a part of the answer to this question has to do with the culture in which this story was told. Luke is the only gospel writer that includes this story. None of the other gospel writers included a story of ascension. Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus promising to be ever-present. Mark's gospel ends abruptly after the women find an open tomb and run away in terror. John's gospel ends with Jesus and Peter taking a stroll on the beach. Only Luke tells this particular story, and he tells it twice. The reason that Luke tells this story is because of his audience. Luke's audience is largely those that have been shaped by the stories of the Roman Empire. In that culture, ascension was not a new story. Ascension wasn't really a new story for most of the ancient world. There were a lot of different cultures that had stories of ascension, including the Jews, who had stories of Enoch and Elijah ascending into the heavens. Most of these cultures used these stories to celebrate accomplishments of great people. To make a claim of ascension was to say that the person that had ascended had made the world a better place, that people had better lives because of them. 
And because of this, they ascended to glory and in some cases became gods themselves. In Rome, the emperors took a familiar story and as they do, they made it political propaganda. In the year 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was assassinated and on the day of his burial, a comet appeared in the sky. Julius' adopted son, the man that we know as Augustus Caesar, saw the comet and made the claim that that, that is my father ascending to the heavens. My father taking on his divine status. My father joining the gods. My father has made this world a better place. And now he reigns high in the heavens, highest praises, Lord of all. Augustus could then claim to be the son of the divine Julius, the son of God, and he even put the title on his coins. This title, son of God, became not just a theological claim, but a political one. To be the son of Julius meant that Augustus could claim his power. But to be the son of God meant that this power was divinely bestowed and that Augustus himself could claim some of this divinity. By the time that Luke writes these volumes, his audience had heard this story over and over and over again as each subsequent empire, emperor that inherited the throne claimed that their father had ascended. The emperor was enthroned, not just as a king, but as the embodiment of God on earth. The emperor was to be obeyed, was to be worshipped, and the cost of refusal was death and domination. It is this word, this phrase, this title that crucified Jesus, crucified thousands of people around the ancient world. Some of the words and themes that we find in our Bible even in the worship song that we just sang, words that we use to celebrate Jesus as king come from coronation and deification ceremonies and songs of ancient tyrant kings who claimed to be God. Luke adopted this story, a story that the Romans had co-opted to begin with. For Luke, though, the power, the power that crucified wasn't really in charge. It was the one who was crucified that held the power. The resurrection story turned the Roman story on its head and the ascension story put the proper son of God on the throne. Caesar was a false claimant and Jesus was the true embodiment of God on earth. The ascension narrative at the end of the gospel serves to enthrone Jesus in the kingdom of peace and to denounce the kingdom of the world. This is for Luke a piece of what it is to be Messiah. And if this is a piece of the Messiah, then it does tell us something about what it means to be disciple. Luke retells this story in Acts, but this time the emphasis again shifts to those that follow. The words are clear. The disciples still show their humanity. They still struggle. This passage speaks of their continued misunderstanding. It speaks of their failure to follow through. And yet, it speaks of their empowerment. 
And it speaks of the task that they're given. After the resurrection, Jesus hangs out with the disciples for another 40 days. And in these 40 days, the text tells us that Jesus continues to teach them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 40 days in the presence of the risen Christ. 40 days learning of a kingdom that sees the deliverance of the oppressed. A kingdom of justice for migrants and for the poor and for the marginalized. A kingdom that turns chaos into shalom and where the ways of war are no longer learned. Where creation is celebrated and served and preserved. Where wounds are healed, sins are forgiven, and people are made whole. And after 40 days, the disciples say, is this the time we fight? Forty days with the man resurrected from the dead and the disciples show that they still completely miss the point. Jesus explains a heavenly realm. Jesus uses his words to paint a picture of shalom and peace and the disciples decide that they want to mimic the one that they see. Disciples are ready to march with the battle hymn But Jesus spoke only words of peace. Jesus' response to their question was sobering. Is this the time we fight, they say? Is this when God will restore us? Jesus says what God will do next isn't going to be made for you. Waiting for divine intervention. That's not the task. Participation. Participation is the task. Jesus still promised them power, but the power wasn't like the power that they saw in Rome. This was not the power of conquest. This is a power to witness. They will receive power because they are the ones that have to speak. And with this promise made, Jesus offers no further explanations and with a blessing ascends into the clouds and disappears. The physical presence of Jesus has disappeared and the disciples seem to be stunned. They remain staring into the heavens, paralyzed until two men in white robes come and say, what are you doing here? In a sermon on this passage several years ago, Fred Craddock once pointed out that it didn't seem like there's much of a need for power if the task is only to witness. If you have something to say, then you just say it. But Craddock also notes that you have to remember what it is that those disciples are tasked with saying and who they're tasked to say it to. The task is to witness to the power and presence of a crucified Messiah, a resurrected Messiah in a world that is absent of him. Absent because this crucified and resurrected Messiah has somehow ascended to the heavens. The task was to say words that would create a new world in a place that dangerously wanted to maintain the one that already existed. To witness means to do two things. It means first to see and to experience. And second, it means to speak. In his commentary on Acts, Willie James Jennings explains further that the task of the disciples The task that they're given is not just to speak of the Jesus that was, but the Christ that is. 
They carry this historical story of Jesus, but they also must continue to find Christ in the world and put words to their experience. So where is this Christ? The disciples simply stare into the heavens. Maybe they're waiting for that divine intervention that Jesus has just said is not coming. And the two men in white appear. What are you doing here? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. This Jesus will come in the same way. If I was one of those disciples, I'd be watching the heavens. But the way that Christ came and the way that Christ left was wrapped in humanity. What I want you to hear today is this. This is the point. This story of ascension, it tells as much of a story about who you are as it does about Jesus. That's why Luke uses this story as the linchpin. This story doesn't avoid our full humanity, but it does tell us that the divine is still found in our humanity. Notice that in the Roman story, the claim of the deification of Julius gives authority to Augustus. And Augustus becomes the divine on earth. By telling this story, by using this story at the beginning of Acts, Luke illuminates two things. First, he gives Jesus' authority to those disciples, but he's also telling the disciples that together, they are the embodiment. They are the embodiment of the divine on earth. In the book of Acts, the challenge is to continue to tell and enact the story of Christ without the bodily presence of Jesus. And the answer to the challenge is that the story continues in those that come after the risen and ascended Christ. This is how we still tell the story today. We speak of the historical life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we speak of where we still, still see Christ today. And where we often see Christ is in one another. One of the people that I've found to be an amazing witness to the presence of Christ in this world is our very own Pastor Janet Weatherston. Pastor Janet oversees our missions and outreach efforts here at the church. And right now she's working on and praying over our continued ministry on the San Pedro Corridor in what we call Mission Central. One of the things that she does every week is she takes our Wesley nurse and those that will go with her and she goes to the Migrant Resource Center on San Pedro Avenue. San Antonio receives hundreds of asylum seekers each week. And Pastor Janet visits that center weekly distributing food and distributing clothing and distributing hope. The people that she encounters have left devastating circumstances They've endured dangerous travel and they've come to legally seek asylum in a place that is at best suspicion at them, suspicious of them and hostile at worst. And the ministry that Janet leaves there is remarkable. And so is the way that she talks about it. I hear Janet tell me weekly that she's met Christ in the world. And through her words, I meet Christ in her. She's right over here, by the way. I encourage you to say hi after the service and ask her about it. 
This is the task. Use your words. Tell the story of Christ. Tell the story of the historical Jesus, but just as much tell the story of Christ here and present today. See the presence of God in all the corners of the earth. Speak the presence of God without regards to our borders and empires. Today, we tell the story of ascension. And the ascension tells a story about us. The words in this story shape us and shape our world. We close the Easter season with this story. Jesus, Jesus is not here. He is risen and he has ascended, but you are here and you are the very body of Christ. You are called to take on this task, to take on this authority and to take on this presence in this world. This is your witness. Your words, your words create worlds, whether you intend them to or not. May your words create a world of grace and love and peace. In the name of the God who resurrects and a crucified Messiah and a spirit of power. Amen.